Well, guys, this movie this week was really spooky. I know, it was super creepy, uncanny valley type of stuff. It just, it creeped the hell out of me. Yeah, it was actually pretty, like, frightening. A lot of the imagery and scenes were just unsettling. I know, it was terrifying. Seriously, I can't believe it's a kid's movie. But, you know, I felt so much better when they finally got to that other world where everything was, like, normal and nice. Then I had this, like, I breathed a sigh of relief. Wait, the other world? Yeah, you know, like the normal world. That's the good world? The the one where they make it so you can't leave? Yeah, I mean, but why would you want to leave? Everything's great there. You always get your favorite breakfast. But what about all the other children who are trapped there? Oh, I know. It's so great to have ghost friends to just talk to and hang out with. I guess that's sort of like Casper, in a way. He's a friendly ghost. Exactly. See, that's what I'm talking about, guys. Some people, though, they're not even given the ability to speak. But, you know, it's like, what would they even say? Okay, but listen to this. Everybody there has button eyes. You can't tell me that's better. Wait, is that not what our eyes are supposed to look like? Oh, boy. Hmm. I gotta go. Hello, Dark Fantasy fans, and welcome to Scares and Satire, the yearly Swords and Satire spooktacular series where we turn scary low fantasy into terrifying high art. I'm your ghostly dungeon manager, Jamie Mulkel, here with my haunting co-hosts. I'm Chelsea Hollowell, a black cat... That can walk between the worlds so that I can be snotty to people wherever I want. (laughs) That sounds like a cat. I just know what's best. I'm a cat. Right. You know the best things in life. Exactly. Yeah, that makes sense. That's a very cat thing. And our cats are playing in the background. (laughs) Oh, I hear chaos. But who am I? Well, I'm your classic Neil Gaiman straight man character. I'm so common it's quirky. (laughs) (laughs) I did notice that you were like just so normal that it was kind of funny. I don't have any feelings about that other than slight shame. (laughs) That's probably for the better. Well, guys, before we jump into this movie, we have... Something to announce to everybody. Yeah. Because you can probably hear it in the background that there's this pitter-patter of little paws. But it's not just our cat Odin, who we introduced a couple weeks ago, but also our new kitten, Puck. And they're playing together, and they're having a good time. Yeah, and you know what? This is a perfect time to talk about family, because this movie that we're going to be talking about today is also a lot about family. But before we talk about family in the movie, I think we should talk about the Swords and Satire family. And I don't just mean our new cats. The Swords and Satire family? What's that? 
Well, you see, the thing is, I think of our patron community as kind of like being our family. They're like our other family. Yeah. And they support the show and help keep it going. And you know what? They also get something in return. That's right. They get awesome bonus episodes. They get the ability to vote on the movies and shows we watch. And they get a direct line to us. Yeah. But, Jack, why don't you tell our listeners how they can join our little family? All right, listen here. Okay, don't don't tune this out. This is the important part right here. You go on to patreon.com slash swords and satire, right? You pull out your credit card number, okay? And you type it in, and you put on the three digits on the back and the expiration, and then you just listen to the extended content and laugh! Laugh! It's art, please. And share it with your friends and family, and get their credit card information as well. Well, much like the family in the movie we were talking about today, that sounds... Great, but also vaguely threatening. (laughs) But guys, this week, we're going to be talking about the 2009 film Coraline. Yeah. And our theme this week is... Spooky shit. Spooky otherworld (laughs) shit. (laughs) So Coraline was directed by the legendary director of A Nightmare Before Christmas, Harry Selleck. And it stars Dakota Fanning, Terry Hatcher, John Hodgman, who I think has uh, maybe some kind of podcast himself, Mm -hmm. if I'm not mistaken, and Keith David, and beloved returning Swords and Satire favorite, Ian McShane. Yeah. Super cool. But, you know, before I ramble on about this movie, I think Chelsea has a little summary ready to go. So this is a movie about family and discovery in which a young girl named Coraline moves to rural Oregon with her parents. Isn't it Caroline? That's what everybody thinks, much to Coraline's chagrin. I would be chagrined too. But so... Deeply chagrined. She's bored. Her parents don't have time for her. She starts to explore the house. Now, it's a old Victorian house that's been sectioned off into different apartments. So she and her family have one of the downstairs apartments. Now, let me see if I understand this right. They live in a gigantic Victorian house, and they are also cripplingly poor? Well, her parents are both writers, so it tracks. Okay. (laughs) I don't know how these things work. But um, everybody can't be, you know, she who will not be named. Yes. I do know who she is. Winona Ryder? No, because we named her. Oh, just now. You're right. If I name this person, then the <laughs> nickname would be Void. Truly. Yeah. So, in her uh, explorations of the house, Coraline discovers a secret door, a tiny secret door that's behind the wallpaper that leads to a parallel world that closely mirrors her own, but it only opens at night. Now, you're saying this as if that is an unusual thing to find in one's house. 
I mean, it's not every house that has a magical colon portal to another world. It's not. Hmm. Interesting. Did you say colon portal? Is there something you're not telling me, Jamie? <laughs> so, turns out, this other world seems to be catered to her every whim. Coraline isn't a nuisance to be ignored in this world, no. Everything centers around her. Oh, that sounds great. Other mother and other father love her and can't get enough, want to spend all their time with her. Oh, that's wonderful. They make all of her favorite foods. How nice. Make everything else around the house just to her liking. I love it. And all of their neighbors who live in the other apartments want to put on a show just for Coraline. How nice. So she starts to spend a lot of time there. Every, Who wouldn't? Every night, and she keeps waking up in her own bed back in the real world and being disappointed. And she starts to really prefer it there until one night, other mother tries to keep her there forever. But it's nice there, so you'd want to stay forever, right? Yeah, there's just one catch. You have to have your eyes taken out and buttons sewn in their place. Uh, you drive a hard bargain, but <laughs> I think I'm open to it. And in exchange, everyone will love you and you'll get all the things you ever wanted. Really not seeing a downside here, other than the eye thing. But there's a catch. The cat that can go between the worlds, the black cat who lives in the house, he explains that it's an elaborate trap. And that other mother is really some other being that wants to feed off of Coraline's energy. The other mother from the other realm. Yes, who's really a beldam. And she turns out to be some kind of a spidery type of being. Still not a deal breaker. And she is trying to trap Coraline there. And she's trapped other children who are now ghosts. And Coraline tries to help them and herself escape by turning it into a game. Yeah, but you know what I always say. Where we're going, we don't need eyes to see. <laughs> yeah, you do say that a lot. Um, So Coraline finds their eyes uh, that look like... Three them. eyes to be uh, yeah. <laughs> exact. With a special one per person. With a special candy, like seeing eye trinket. Hagstone, as Jack pointed out. Uh, it's yeah. a Hagstone. Nice. And Did uh, you used to play Hagstone on your phone all the time. Yeah, that's the one. Pay to win, Hagstone. <laughs> and she finds out where her real parents have been taken because at one point the Beldum took them hostage and put them in a snow globe. That's a good place to store parents <laughs> for safekeeping. Coraline tricks the Beldum, gets her parents in the children's eyes, and escapes through the portal, locking it with a special key. And once she gets back to her house, and her parents walk in covered in snow, but they don't seem to understand that they've been missing for hours. You know, sometimes you just lose time. Uh huh. No big deal. And so the. The ghost children escape. Coraline thinks she's done, but finds out she has to get rid of the spidery hand that made it through the portal from the Beldum. And she's trying to get the key to unlock the door. And she and Wyvie, her friend from next door, work together to throw it down an abandoned well. And um, then they're going to be uh, 
problematic friends after that? Uh, we'll see how it goes. <laughs> There's no friends like problematic friends. <laughs> wow, that was a very concise and well-prepared summary. And you know what that means? Now it's time for the delve. Welcome to the Delve, where we venture deep into the themes, scenes, and lore of Coraline. I wanted to just start by commiserating with Coraline. I think this story captures pretty well what it's like to be a kid, and there's kind of like the world that kids exist in and the worlds that adults exist in, and they're so preoccupied with their work or projects or their own agendas that boring <laughs> they don't listen to her they either actively ignore her and tell her to go away like her parents or they're never really listening to her and just trying to have their own conversation while she's talking to them talking at her and not with her exactly Am I right? and then everybody except for her parents keeps getting her name wrong which, At least her parents get her name right. That's comforting. Which I remember that happened to me. My name's Chelsea. and It is? <laughs> it's spelled C-H-E-L-S-E-A. That's the English spelling. And uh, a lot of people when I was growing up, it was less common of a name than it is now. And people used to pronounce it Chelsea. And it's not a big deal to me now, but when I was a kid, I really hated it. Yeah, I mean, when you're a kid, that kind of thing is annoying. When you get older, you're like, yes, pronunciation is a thing. But, I mean, I, I just feel for Coraline. She seems to be really irritated by it. Yeah, I get that. My name is Jack, but people used to say, hey, you, get back here. You're like, that's not even close. No, I don't. I wouldn't know how to spell that even. I I can't write. Oh, my God. <laughs> well, so what you're saying is this film creates a relatable protagonist. Yeah, and it is interesting, like the child versus adult worlds that they show. Child versus adult sounds <laughs> deadly. <laughs> um, Troubling. And like the parallel universe that she goes to through the portal in the small door in her house, it's kind of like a symbol for the strife that is going on in her life, you know? Yeah, because it's like a colon and it sucks <laughs> to be a kid. It's real shitty sometimes right. when adults don't pay attention to you and won't buy you those gloves that you really want. Right. But in each world, things aren't what they seem. Our perspective character is Coraline. We're getting her parents' dialogue from her perspective. Sure. They, we don't know what's going on with them. And we kind of get an inkling later on, like, in the real world for Coraline, like, her real world parents, they act impatient with her. I mean, she's an only child. She doesn't have a lot of people to play with. She's just moved away from her friends. She craves that attention from other people, but their writers... They seem like they're poor. They're living in an old Victorian house that is run down and hasn't been maintained. 
Yeah, I mean, it's gigantic. It probably still is very expensive to maintain and, and live there. But, you know, uh, suspension of disbelief for fiction? the uh, We call that the friends approach. Jamie, they live in Oregon, not California. That's probably your, <laughs> where you're getting confused. Oh, I see. So it's probably a lot cheaper to live there. Sure. I mean, where we live, you know, a rundown shack is about a billion dollars a month. Right. So we find out that her parents are both writers. They're both really stressed out to meet this deadline in a few days of getting a guidebook out for gardening. Yeah. I mean, they're both clearly very stressed because of financial hardship which can be devastating it's one of the leading causes of divorce and they don't seem to get along either her mother and father they're they're they bicker and um when Coraline's mother takes her out shopping for a uniform Coraline sees a pair of gloves and wants them they're $25 her mother can't afford it but she doesn't tell Coraline that she just says no right and she's kind of doing that thing where she is Trying to hide the family's financial destitution from the children. And it ends up being kind of a point of contention between the mother and Coraline. And, you know, not that necessarily a young child, you know, a younger teenager would understand the implications of living with financial hardship so well. But the mother kind of just be comes flipping about it and it's just like oh no of course not like we can't do that like Coraline's probably old enough to kind of understand some of the reasons why they might not be able to afford something right now but her mother doesn't even give her the time to understand that she's just probably so used to kind of obfuscating that to to protect Coraline, also to protect herself as the as the mother. A lot of people in our culture, especially, and and you know most capitalist cultures, have a lot of shame and anxiety tied to poverty mm-hmm. because our systems around us are put in place and designed to make you feel shame for not being able to afford things. It's true, and she seems to kind of feel guilty about it. Later, she tries to make it up to Coraline to say, like, oh, you can come shopping with me for groceries and, you know, you can pick something else out that you want. And Coraline just says, oh, like the gloves. And the mom looks kind of sad and like, like ashamed. And that part's really sad. Yeah. Yeah, that sort of happens after Coraline has been going into the other fantasy world a few times. Yeah. In the beginning... She's only getting vinegar from her parents, right? They're ignoring her and they're giving her meaningless tasks to keep her occupied. Oh, but vinegar is delicious. Uh, not metaphorically. Oh. (laughs) And it's only like after she starts getting spoiled by the other parents that she can't even acknowledge when her parents start actually being compassionate toward her. Right. At that point, she's kind of already feeling so put out and has disassociated from her parents that she's just kind of checked out. Yeah, there's an interesting role reversal, that scene, where Mm -hmm. the mom starts being nice and trying to talk about like, oh, I'm going to go get some good food for us. You know, maybe eventually we can get that stuff like that. 
Coraline is just dismissing it, not giving her a chance, basically. Now, see, one yeah. of the other things, though, that, that complicates this for the perspective character of Coraline as a young teenager, the gloves for Coraline represent self-expression. Yeah. There's something that she can wear. She has to wear a uniform to school. But the gloves are that little bit of personality that she can pick something and have it be her own, even if she has to dress like all the other kids. So it's hard because the mother like basically is saying, we can't afford this. I can't tell you that because we don't live in a culture where I feel comfortable being that open about why I can't afford to buy things for my children. And Coraline is asking her right in front of the store clerk. Right. And maybe she feels ashamed about saying it. But, you know, for Coraline, it's this feeling of I'm being denied my self-expression. Right. For her, as a young child, money is probably very much a loose construct. Nebulous idea. Exactly. You just pay money for things and then you get them. (laughs) Right. But so because she's being denied her self-expression... That seems to be the catalyst for Coraline stepping away from her parents, her mother especially, and being like, I just don't want to do anything with you now because you won't let me be myself, is what it it feels like to her. Yeah. And from her perspective, you know, we can empathize with that. I can empathize with both characters, yeah. And I think, I'm thinking about it, they just moved to this house that's probably cheaper for them to live in, and the place where they got this writing job is in the nearby town. So they probably had to move there because they got these, these jobs there. I mean, we see at the beginning of the movie, they're paying movers to move in. That's expensive. And the movers want a tip. Yeah. She gives them a dollar. So they are probably having to move around to follow where they can find work. And they seem to be hard up. Yeah. It's tough. And it's tough for Coraline. Being in an age where self-expression is really important and being denied that is having a really big negative impact on her. And after this, the other mother does give her more expressive clothing. Right. She gives her the shirt, the sweater with stars on it. And oh, my God. I love that sweater. I want that sweater. Mm-hmm. And some bright blue boots. Those Very are really cool. cool that match her hair. Yes. Yeah. And she wears that. She puts it on right away. She wears it for the rest of the movie. Um, It's a pretty awesome outfit. Can't lie. So, I mean, why not just stay with other mothers? Seems like (laughs) everything's great there. I don't really see the problem. Ah, but things aren't what they seem there either. (laughs) Because other mother says she just wants to keep Coraline there to love her. but Right, it's great. As the black cat points out to Coraline, it's not always great to get everything you ever wanted. And a perfect life is really just a fancy looking trap. Aha. The gilded cage. Exactly. Because as Coraline tries to leave and walk around the world, it actually just starts to dissolve around her and she ends up back at the house. Like... There's only the house and the garden around it in the other world. Right. The The farther she goes out away from the house, or after she goes out just a little bit of a ways from the house, the world, again, literally dissolves, like Chelsea was describing, and like deconstructs around her. 
And it seems like with the other ghost children that are there, she they tell Coraline that the Beldum took their eyes already. So she's lying to Coraline. She wants to take her eyes to take possession of her because she can't control Coraline unless she makes her like a part of that world. Right. And she basically lives off the energy because when Coraline is leaving, she says, if you leave me, I will die. Like she basically feeds off the energy of these children. It's true. The cat mentions that she wants to love the kids forever or she eats them and or drains them of their vital essences. It's true. I thought the interesting part of that was I was thinking about how if the Beldum was just a predator, it would have just killed Coraline. Right. Instantly. Right? Like a mountain lion doesn't like try to make you fall in love with it. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> oh, don't they though? Oh, they do. They're so cute and cuddly. Yeah. I know. It just you want to just go hug them and then throat torn out. Yeah. You know, maybe that love energy is just so sweet. Yeah, maybe it is. But I was just thinking about the insidious nature of the be- the beldum. Yeah. Just because when the world falls away, a web is what remains, right? Right. A spider's web. Yeah, the house eventually disintegrates. You're right. And then it just becomes a giant web. Yeah. And what is a spider but a creature who drains you of all your love and your vital juices? (laughs) Yeah, it's true. I just thought the nature of it was so interesting. The way it's willing to wait days for Coraline to keep coming back again and again. It just, think of it from the Beldum's perspective. You seeing your food come and you let it go away every day. Yeah. Well, it also seems like a complicated relationship in a way. I kind of thought of the Beldum in a similar way as I thought of Mother Gothel from Tangled, who like kind Mm. of needs this love and validation from a child or child figure. Okay. Yeah, I see that. Like, it's not, I mean, obviously with the Beldum, we get the quite literal spider imagery of something that is potentially dangerous. Something that is predatory. And if the house is really her web, she has complete control over everything in her web, but she can't control Coraline. But she doesn't have complete control over everything. Because other YB does resist. That's true. Her constructs do resist. Yeah, and Other Father kind of has like a lucid moment where they are like these simulacra that have a small essence of maybe of the person that they're a copy of or something. They know that Coraline is in danger and point it out to her in these like moments of clarity. Yeah, it seems like by living in that house, she is able to slightly drain people's essence just passively because she can use that to recreate them right in the other world um because let me talk about this yb said uh that his grandmother who owns the house and they live next door his grandmother told him never to go in the house and he never had before Coraline brought him inside and he was actually like on the property too and after that he shows up 
in the other world, right? Right. Well, a version of him. That's what I mean. So it's kind of like she kind of is able to drain some essence from people passively. Yeah, it seems like it. The, I'm glad you brought up the thing with Wybie's grandmother because he has this line where he says that she doesn't like children living in the house. And we know that children have gone missing her sister, from that house. When they were kids, her sister went missing from that house. Right, and other kids that have rent have whose parents have rented the house. The children with the missing eyes, the ghost children. Yeah. That probably explains why... The grandmother doesn't want children living there. Not only that, but the Beldum also was able to see YB through the eyes of the Coraline doll. There's a scene in the movie where YB brings Coraline a little doll that looks a lot like herself. As in spitting image. Spitting image. She's like, did you make this of me? And he's like, no, my grandma's had this since before she could remember, right? Yeah, Coraline's not nearly creeped out enough by that. I know. Yeah, because the very first thing we see in the movie is the Beldum's hands, which are made out of needles, emptying out a doll and making it to look like Coraline and just casting it off into space, right? That's right. And then oh at one God. point we hear that she can see through the doll yes. to spy on Coraline. That's right. So she is weaving an elaborate web, yeah. as it were. That's right. That spans time, because this thing is many decades old. And Coraline is like 12. <laughs> right. Yeah, I mean, yeah. And Other Mother has kind of set this perfect world up, right? It's everything Coraline could want. It's a loving and attentive set of parents who aren't just, from Coraline's perspective, stuffy writers. The other father is a musician. The other mother cooks her her favorite meals and knows what her favorite things are. Like Jack said, she's been viewing Coraline through the eyes of this doll. Mm -hmm. She has created this perfect world to entrap Coraline. Spooky stuff. Oh, I just think the Beldum is so cool. It, she's like an insectoid creature, but made out of mostly needles and like what looks like chipping ceramic parts and stuff. I know. She likes games. Oh, feeds you on know love what? and consent. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. I was going to say, there's nothing like a mom who loves games. Yeah. One other interesting thing is the... Otherworld starts to fall apart and the illusion starts to break down when Coraline is recovering the other children's eyes. In each area where she recovers them from, it loses all color and then starts to break down into the white void that the world actually is. Right. It's almost like the containers for those eyes are powering the illusion. The illusion. Yeah. Or like forming this alternate reality. That's another big reason why I think that she needs these children to fuel this world and to feed on. And that that's why she can't completely control Coraline yet because she hasn't replaced her eyes. There's something about that exchange that gives her control over people. It's the deal with the devil, right? Yeah. She has to get Coraline to agree to this. Right. It has to be her own free will, her own choice. 
Because she gives her the option. The other mother is not just like, okay, like, you're here. Let's get those eyes. Yeah, she tells her it's her choice. Right. She's not omniscient. So she has little beings that work for her, these rats, that the cat tries to track down and help Coraline avoid. You know, I'm glad you brought up the cat again because I want to talk about the cat. The cat is a really interesting character because it's effectively the only other creature that can travel between the world. And knows what the Beldum is. It knows what the Beldum is. It can speak in the dulcet tones of Keith David when it goes into the other world. It's not a talking cat in the regular world, but it is a talking cat in the other world. And the Beldum knows that cats can get into her world and hates cats. It specifically said that the Beldum or the other mother hates cats. She calls them vermin. Why does the cat gain the ability to speak when it goes into this world? What is it about cats? Is it just because they're the most magical little creatures? I mean, I think that might be it. Hold on now. Coraline says to the cat, well, in the real world, cats don't speak. And he, the cat says to her, oh, really? I guess you're the expert. You know all about these things. He doesn't say that. He doesn't yeah. confirm that they can't actually talk. Yeah, but then he won't talk to her and he just meows at her in the real world. So I think he's just kind of trying to flex there and it's not really working. Are you saying he's being catty? Oh my god. <laughs> now, another aspect of the Beldum's trap, right, goes back to my point about expression. When she's selling Coraline on the idea of having her eyes replaced with buttons, she says, black is traditional, but if you want other colors, there's all these choices. Coraline wanted those gloves, right, that were expressive of herself. Mm -hmm. She knows that Coraline wants choices. She wants more than just what's put in front of her. She wants the ability to have some autonomy. It's very relatable. But she's using that as part of this trap. Yes. And actually, those choices are what starts to make Coraline more and more horrified by the idea. Because the more the colors change on the buttons, the more terrified Coraline looks by this idea. <laughs> Where at first she's just kind of like, what? I'm not going to do that. Kind of nonplussed a little bit. And uh, she just gets more and more scared. <laughs> And she plays it, tries to play it off really well, too. She's like, you know, I'm going to think about it. And I, it's really time for me to go to bed now. Right. Because <laughs> she usually knows that going to bed means she gets to go back to her real world. But mm -hmm. at that point, she is already wound deeply into the web. Yeah. And, it's, and doesn't just wake up back IRL. It's harder for her to escape. Possibly because she's been in that other world for so long she's starting to become a part of it she ate the food from that other world often a way to get trapped in fey realms exactly and this is like kind of like a fey pocket realm dimension <laughs> or a shadow fell yeah i i also thought it was really interesting how this is another movie that we've watched a la jumanji a never-ending story where making a child's story 
infused with horror by making the familiar stranger dangerous. The old stranger dangerous. <laughs> mm-hmm. Uh, So it's like this house, you know. The house is like their house, but just odd little differences. The painting on the wall is a little bit different. It's a little bit cleaner and brighter, but somehow more disconcerting because of it. And I mean, the button eyes are kind of a giveaway. Oh, yeah, I guess that's kind of weird, too. Yeah. But the piano plays itself. (laughs) It plays her father. (laughs) Right. Oh, God. (laughs) Now, that's an interesting part of the illusion. The way that the longer it goes on, the more it falls apart. Right. It starts becoming inconsistent. Yeah. Like the YB figure, the other YB, you already mentioned, starts trying to warn Coraline, right? Right. But he is outright distressed constantly when the other mother is around. Right. He's supposed to be happy. And the other mother is just like, you have to be smiling all the time. But inside, he is not happy. No. He frowns at one point. And then the other father, in the middle of the night, is just droning away on the piano. And Coraline is like, hey, what's going on, buddy? He just (laughs) turns around. He's like sort of drooping. His skin is like too long on his face. He's falling apart. (laughs) Yeah. His proportions are suddenly all off on his body. He goes, why be pulled a long face? And then he drags the corners of his mouth down super far. He goes, and mom didn't like that, right? <laughs> oh, God. oh, God. And then when we see, and the, the piano tries to stop him, right? The yeah. piano is turning him away and trying to keep him from talking. That's right. That part was super creepy. And then next time we see YB, he has his face sewn up into a smile, trigger warning. <laughs> Joker style. Yes. Yeah. And Coraline helps him remove that. Yeah. And, you know, I mean... That's an important message, right? We can't just always be happy all the time. We have to express our emotions. Sometimes people in our lives try to control or police our feelings, but it is much healthier to be able to be sad when you're sad and to express that and to get, you know, empathy or or to just have people be responsive, supportive. And, you know, the, um, I was going to say, the absence of happiness is not misery. (laughs) And honestly, happiness is kind of like this elusive thing anyway. Exactly. It's not something that we can have all the time. And nobody should expect that they are going to always be just exuberant and filled with joy. You're going to have off days. Yeah. And honestly, like the idea of happiness is a strange idea. It's sort of like how with her real parents... They ignore her very often. They don't follow through on this very fun lifestyle that Coraline wants. But at the end, they're planting tulips together. They're enjoying pink lemonade with all their neighbors. They're having a good time. It's There's been so much bleakness that just those little simple pleasures are something that's really nice for her to experience. Yeah, at the end. And, and, yeah. and what I was just saying about happiness, like my main point is that It's just such a nebulous concept that can mean something different to every single person that I think that it's lost a lot of its meaning in 
our lexicon and we should just try to describe other things just vibe <laughs> for our lives like joy like you said or fulfillment or contentment like use different words that might have more meaning pleasure or pain <laughs> i mean yeah. there's a fine line between those two things and it's so blurry <laughs> <laughs> the line it's so blurry Jack, what are you doing with that strange cube? I'm just saying, listen here, listen here. The beldum has needles for fingers, and the main Cenobite is Pinhead. <laughs> Whoa. Wow. The overlapping. I mean, I was just waiting for the beldum to go, ye have such sights to show you. <laughs> <laughs> so, we've touched on class a little bit, but... I don't think we've touched on it enough because this movie is just lousy with class commentary and kind of a deconstruction of like work culture. So this is about class struggle. Kind of, yeah. So we've already talked about how Coraline's family is struggling financially. But there's some other interesting markers about the family's situation that we see throughout the movie. And one of them is there's this kind of repeated thing about how the parents are garden writers who don't actually garden. Her mom hates dirt. Yeah, her mom hates dirt. Her parents don't really do much actual gardening until the end of the movie when they're kind of like magically um, alleviated of their poor financial situation because they got their guide finished up. Yeah. And actually having the garden party with planting and everybody planting things in the garden was Coraline's idea. And they were actually able to follow through with it because they finished the calendar guide, gardening guide, and they got paid for it. Right. There's this line where, you know, we're seeing how when somebody is constantly having to be worried about money, they can't really focus on other things. It's so all consuming. Her parents have become trapped in this cycle of poverty that is such a drain on them emotionally that they can barely function in their day-to-day lives. And we see that like earlier in the movie when the parents are making dinner, you know, and the mom points out, I don't cook anymore. I just do the cleaning. Your father does the cooking. You know, we're, we're getting, I mean, first off, we're getting some normative stereotypes about who does the cooking and cleaning in, in a family relationship and everything. That's neither here nor there necessarily. It was an interesting choice for the film. They kind of treat it like it's aberrant behavior that the father is cooking dinner. But the more important thing for the story of the film is that he doesn't seem to actually have any skill with preparing food. And he makes like slime. He makes weird casseroles that don't seem like they taste very good. They're just like very gooey and wet. Yeah. He he puts a big scoop of booger on a plate. Yeah, <laughs> it's not good. What is this, Dad? It's a booger. But, now eat but it. Coraline talks about how her mom used to like make good food that she really liked. And 
we can see how kind of destitute they are by this. They're eating boogers for dinner. Well, I mean, there are a few times when they open their fridge and there's almost nothing in there. Oh, it is just rotten food in their fridge. That's why the scene where the mother is like saying, let's go grocery shopping is kind of supposed to be this turning point in the mother's perspective. But for Coraline, we're seeing that it's like too little too late. I thought it was incredible when Coraline said to the mom, you know, why did people suffer for hundreds of years as a result of the spice trade for you not to use a single spice in our cooking? Oh, my God. (laughs) (laughs) We're seeing this depiction of what I think is uh, financial depression. And by that, I mean, like, Mm. the state that individuals get into when they feel like they have no autonomy and no control over their means of production, their means of survival. And there are very little or no social safety nets for families like that. And if they do exist, there are so many barriers to entry or maintaining that support that it is often beyond people's means to keep up with that and again the shame associated with it we know that Coraline's mother is experiencing a tremendous amount of shame due to their poverty because she can't say it in front of the store clerk and it it causes her parents to be kind of like stressed and anxious all the time they look unwell And And their marriage is clearly falling apart. Yeah, like, not only are they prickly with Coraline, they are prickly with each other, and the mom is kind of mean to her father. To the husband. To her husband, Coraline's father. And, like, when they're going to turn in their draft for the gardening guide they're writing, she keeps jabbing him, like... Oh, don't worry. They'll like it to the to the her husband, you know, or at least the months I wrote about. Right. And yeah, they're competitive with each other for this project that is ostensibly theirs. It's cooperative. I don't understand why she's being competitive, but uh, because of the way that our economic system is set up and sets true. people at odds with each other That's instead a good point. of teaching us to cooperate, which is a much more natural and traditional way of family and even cultural groups to function it's true it is much more traditional and he wanted her to come in with him he was feeling vulnerable and nervous like being in this state can make you feel vulnerable and unsure of yourself he thought she was going to come in with him and i really felt for him in that moment when she was like basically kicking him out of the car to go turn it in for both of them he's like you're not coming with me It was was so sad. sad. It broke my heart. And he was just looking at her with these puppy dog eyes like, come on, be my wingman. (laughs) She was like, suck it up. Be my financial wingman. She's like, suck it up. Get out there, soldier. And he's like, especially since it makes him so miserable to write the thing. We see, when we see scenes of him typing on the computer, he's the most dead inside creature. There's no brain. No brain when he's sitting at the computer. He looks pale and sickly. Yeah, it's true. He is in agony writing this thing. And then he has to pitch it by himself. (laughs) And he gets roasted about his own contribution. What is uh, going on with them where she doesn't even want to be involved in that process to make 
to help him make sure they get paid for this thing. It's kind of bonkers. She's I... putting the impetus all on him. Yeah, it seems odd that she is so acutely aware of their financial destitution and then refuses to help with, like, the pitch. Maybe. You would think that she would be wanting control over that. And she seems to be controlling. And maybe it's about, like, being depressed about their state. Maybe she's terrified. And she's worried that it won't come through and she can't stand to be there for that. I don't know. I think part of it is the dad could be the better salesperson. And she thinks that she wouldn't be a good contribution and there's evidence for this i think and you're saying that she can't be supportive she just has to like push him away for that she would be a hindrance like the dominating part of her personality is more of a turnoff in a sales room right but i'm saying yeah i, I agree with you there but also she can't admit that yeah so she's like being really aggressive and like you go do it I can't actually vocalize the part that I know that I'd be terrible at it. I just have to make it seem like I'm being in control of everything. And when she's pushing him away like that, that's when she's trying to make the jab that she's the better writer. Right. To kind of like puff up her own ego could be a vulnerable moment for her too. Because like Jack's saying, it does make sense that maybe she is feeling vulnerable because she knows she's not good at this other thing. Yeah, that's a great point, Jack. Well, the dad is the diplomatic one. He is. We can see early on when they are first moving into the house and they're already jumping into work. Coraline is like, hey, mom, let's do something fun. And the mom is like, idiot. And Coraline is like, oh, okay. Doesn't like that. Goes up to the dad and she's like, hey, dad, want to play a game? He's like, what? Sure, go count all the doors and windows in the house and all the leaky boards. And he just gives her this horrible task. And sure, it's bad. And he's not actually doing it with her, but at least he engages with her. You know what I'm saying? Sure. He he's tries. like, he's making an effort. Yeah. And she actually goes to do it because she can't think of anything else to do. Yeah, which is funny. That's a funny scene. But uh, he just seems like the guy who's... Not good at handling his own emotions necessarily, but he is the diplomatic person. He might be better at emotional labor than the mother, at least. Yeah. And you know, it's kind of sad because this family strife at home bleeds in, can bleed into other relationships, like with Coraline, when she's meeting a new potential friend, YB, which is short for Wyborn. She's oh, God. She's really cruel to him. Yes, she has internalized the behavior of her mother at being dismissive and right. kind of downplaying other people or just kind of generally treating them like garbage. Yeah, she's disparaging him, making fun of his name. Like, my name is my horrible backstory. <laughs> Why was I born? Yeah, this kid lives with his grandmother. You don't know what's happened to him in his life. They do get off on the wrong foot. They kind of do. He kind of shows up in like aggro biker mode and it's like seems like he's trying to run Coraline down at first. He does knock her down. He's isolated out here in the country without anybody else his age. 
And he just lives with his grandmother. Yeah, they can't have other children there because, well, we don't talk about that. He's just not been properly socialized. Yeah. And Coraline, Neither of them have been, really. It's true. And yeah, it's just, he's he's coming across as a good, like, a kid with a good heart doesn't know how to interact with people. And Coraline, yeah, she's hard. She's a hard person. Under better circumstances, they both could have responded more constructively to one another. Yeah. But they just don't know any better. And it's sad. In the end, after Coraline defeats the Beldum and kind of battles her own internal demons, she's able to be nicer to Wybie and show him empathy. Well, I'm glad you brought that up because before we move on, I want to ask you guys a question about the ending of this movie. At the end, after Coraline effectively defeats the Beldum, we kind of get this idyllic scene of, oh, the book is sold our financial problems are alleviated now we're able to have this big gathering with this kooky zany cast of characters that we've met who live kind of throughout the house in like the basement and the attic and stuff we've got mr bobinski upstairs we've got the sisters or best friends quote unquote who live in the basement yeah the grandmother comes and is like feeling uh i guess maybe like the Beldum has been defeated. What do you guys think about the ending? Is it satisfying to have this kind of neat little wrap up or how did you feel about it? It feels very much like the end for a children's story that way. I guess it's a little bit, it kind of softens the messages a little bit or blurs them. Uh, Especially the like class struggle economic messages yeah i was thinking something similar it's like the parents personality totally changes once they have a little bit of income and maybe it is the kind of stuff they always would have wanted to do but they're always so stressed about money they can't think about it and maybe i mean when people do get a little bit of money and like alleviating their financial struggles can create some sense of euphoria so it may not be totally out of bounds yeah i mean i i think that's a good point i don't think it's necessarily unbelievable that having the tension of this big book sale lifted off of them might change their personalities a bit but it does seem kind of like this really neat wrap up to this world that was a little bit more comfortable with the messiness of real life Yeah, you know, I think I read the book and I'm pretty sure that at the end of the book, there's an insinuation that the Beldum isn't totally defeated and like you can still hear something clicking around in the well. That sounds like the end of a Neil Gaiman book. Yeah. So it's like she's not gone. Um, And they don't show that in the movie. They, They cut that and they change the ending. I'm wondering if the movie is kind of trying to insinuate that the influence of the Beldum was kind of dragging everybody in the house down in a way. I mean, like the um, it's possible the the Sears, the uh, burlesque dancers who live in the basement, are pretty friendly to Coraline. Mister Babinski is hot and cold towards her. Everybody's 
general mood seems to lift a bit at the end. And I think it could either be a convenient, just, oh, the movie's over, we have to wrap everything up nicely in a little bow type of thing. Or there could be the insinuation that this malignant influence has been lifted and it has changed the personalities of the occupants of this house. Even though the other occupants, like their neighbors, are not mean to Coraline, they are kind of disjointed in their attention and ways of thinking. And they seem to be more coherent in in the present moment at the end. So there could be something to that. The Beldum kind of seems to drain people's energy, whoever lives there. So maybe they feel more whole and able to be fully present. And that's part of it. But we're kind of lightsabering a little bit with that. I mean, that's literally what we do here. (laughs) True. I mean, I can sort of see their personalities becoming a lot more pleasant once they get money. They were really grinding, and they couldn't really eat good food. Yeah. They literally couldn't afford to relax or have fun with their kids. So the second they had money... They could take time to garden to get lemonade, right? Something that doesn't seem very exciting, which at the end is a very exciting development. Right. That's like a big deal at the end that they could afford that. It's true. And there's a line where the mom says, hey, you were right, Coraline. I don't like working in the dirt. And it's like the parents the whole time were writing a gardening catalog, right? They didn't even have the chance to garden. Yeah. (laughs) In a way, their life was in danger the entire movie. Not because of the Beldum. Because of the economy. That's right. So, if you think about it, their lives were just saved in multiple ways. So what you're saying is that we all need a social safety net. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm, excellent point. They had, you know what? Thanks to family and friends, they were able to they were able to enjoy what their money brought them, you know? That's right. At the end they had community. The real money was the friends they made along the way. Yes. <laughs> the real currency. Yes. All right, well I think we've said pretty much everything we're going to say for the delve. I think it's time to head into the smithy. Welcome to the Smithy, where we forge a rating for this movie after we each share an epic moment or feature from the film. Jack, do you want to tell us your epic moment or feature and then give us a rating between 1 and 10 needles so sharp you won't even feel them? Yes. Dear God. Oh, well, I know my epic moment right out the gate. First night, Coraline goes to the other world. They see the other father. He's at a piano with gloves that are mechanical that play him. And he sings a song that he makes up about Coraline. Catchiest shit I ever heard. Look it up on YouTube. Watch the movie so you can relate to the episode. It's so catchy. It's a, you know, he has a good voice. It's a fun tune. Very nice. Mm Mm-hmm. 
it's cute. He's singing about Coraline making up songs about her like we do with our cats. Yeah, it's just a very nice scene. Very catchy, too. And that's it. I just like that. That's a nice scene. Yes. When I review this film in my mind, I think it is visually very beautiful. Yeah. It is really iconic and unique in its plot beats and its imagery. Just the entire story is very original. I like it quite a bit. And I think there are a few themes, maybe with YB, that are a little problematic. They could look over again, but it is also the awkwardness of children. Children are problematic. So uh, just looking at how beautiful it is, how fun the story is, and a few things I might revise when it comes to pacing and themes... I'm probably going to give this movie a uh, 8 out of 10 needles so sharp. Uh, <laughs> you won't even feel them. Yeah, you won't even feel it. That's good. I like it a lot. I've seen it thrice, and I'll see it more times. I'll see it right now. <laughs> That's great. That's a solid rating. How about you, Chelsea? What's your epic moment or feature? And then your rating from 1 to 10 needles so sharp you won't even feel them. <laughs> My epic feature is YB. Yay! I think that he's probably never had a friend. A, oh. human, a human friend, I what, should yeah, say. Yeah, I was going to say, what about his slugs? I believe that. No, the cat is his friend. I mean, what other friend do you need? <laughs> Um, and they pal around together a lot. Mm-hmm. And like when it's raining, the cat is like hiding under his jacket. It's very cute. It's actually. really cute. Oh, yeah. You know, he's just awkward with Coraline because he doesn't know how to be a good friend to humans. Like when he first meets her, he tries to have like an epic entrance. He probably thought he'd look cool. <laughs> it's true. And he just ends up annoying her because he scared her relatable and so he seems like perpetually confused after that for why she's reacting to him the way she does (laughs) and he's just trying to connect with somebody else and he's having a tough time with it but in the end they it ends up working out and uh by interacting with her he learns how to be a better friend and less creepy (laughs) Mm -hmm. so i think it helps and also, he helps Coraline be a nicer person, too. Yeah, it's true. So that's my epic feature. And I'm going to give it 8 out of 10 needles so sharp you don't feel it, too. It's very beautiful. The art is amazing and really compelling. It really helps to convey all of the emotions in the right moments. I think they did a good job with it. And I like that the characters seem to have an arc and they kind of are working in tandem with one another. They're kind of on similar arcs of working through their stress and anxiety or traumas. It's always better to do it with a friend. Yeah. So I think that's interesting too. But what about you, Jamie? What's your epic moment or feature and your rating from one to 10 needles so sharp you won't even feel them? Yes, Jamie, please tell us. Well, I'm glad you guys asked. I think my epic feature is going to be the fortune-telling former burlesque dancers 
Miss Spink and Miss Forcible. Yes. They're just great. So epic. <laughs> so, you know, I mean, we, we get so much character development from just the context clues of Coraline going into their kind of basement apartment. Yeah. We've got these two older ladies living together. Best friends, I'm sure. Yeah, the best. They're just the best kind of friends. They're both former burlesque performers, which is awesome. Very cool. Now, they're fortune tellers. They read tea leaves. Super rad. Yeah. Love that. Very cool. And they play cards with their dogs. They play cards with their dogs. So cool. I believe they're playing Go Fish, <laughs> which is a fun game to play with a dog, I think. Yeah. Probably a right within a dog's comprehension level. You know, they do their best to be really nice with Coraline. They use candy, Mancy. It's very cool. They have dishes of candy that they use to tell the future and to, like, create hagstones. Yeah. They have all of their dogs uh, that have passed away stuffed, which is a little wild. But, I mean, they're, they're animal lovers, I guess is the point. They're performers of all different types. And they're also, they approach it from an enterprising perspective. They're yeah. Very entrepreneurial. And their other selves give a very sexy performance. It's true. <laughs> Probably uh, too erotic for a children's movie, but hey, what are you going to do? That's how you know it's not Disney. Yeah, but there's like kind of an absent mother vibe to it. So oh boy. there is that. And then an honorable mention to the popcorn machine that's a chicken that eats corn and then shits out popcorn. Because that was like my favorite visual gag in the whole movie. Yes. But I digress. I'm going to give this movie 6 out of 10 needles so sharp you won't even feel them. I really do enjoy it. I find the movie a little hard to follow for some reason. It it I think it's just classic dream logic movie where the scenes kind of jump and float around. It has some really memorable moments, but I feel like the action is a little hard to follow from scene to scene. Hmm. Mm -hmm. The way a lot of kids' movies kind of just jump from moment to moment without a lot of explanation, I feel like they don't really develop the danger in a very tangible way. They just kind of leave it to the vagary of, oh, the Beldum is bad because it wants to, like, drain your energy, question mark? Like, I would have liked more clear-cut stakes about what the threat was and then let that develop how Coraline is going to deal with what's happening. So you're saying in the very first scene, when the Beldum is making the doll of Coraline, it empties out a puppet. To fill and create the Coraline doll, you want it to be a scene with one of the former children that she empties out and makes into the Coraline doll for continuation and sends it out into the world again. Trigger warning. Trigger warning. So that's what I am giving it. Six out of ten, needle so sharp, you won't even feel them. It's lower than I expected, but... Based on what I've heard of your opinion, it seems fair. Yeah. It works. Well, I'm not taking it back. <laughs> well, I think that'll do it for us this week on another episode of Scares and Satire. Ooh. Huh. 
Chelsea, why don't you tell people what we're going to be covering next week? Next week, we are going to be covering Maleficent 2. And one of our patrons, Mickey, is going to be on the show with us. Super hype. Can't wait. Going to be so much fun. Loved talking to Mickey the last time she was on when we talked about Maleficent 1, I believe. Yep. Also, I think we did a bonus episode where we covered the Buffy the Vampire Slayer once more with feeling. And that is on the Patreon uh, page. So, Yeah. If you want to listen to that, better go join up. And if you do, you'd be able to, like we said, get other art that we create, like our rewriting history episodes, which are our movie pitches and outtakes as well as voting on the movies that we watch each month. So uh, if you have the means, you could support the show and have some other fun art to listen to. You can also follow us at Swords and Satire on social media, on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. You can see our memes. You can find out what movies we're covering every week. And you can just stay in touch with us. I'll, uh, you know, shoot me a message. I'll talk about movies with you. I'll talk about any movie with you if I've seen it. Maybe even if I haven't seen it. Yeah, you could give us your hot takes. We'll discuss it with you. But if you find that you're not on social media and that you don't have a few extra buttons to slip toward your favorite podcasters. Ooh, buttons. I'll take buttons. <laughs> why not connect with your friends and family in a way that doesn't involve life-threatening colon portals? <laughs> I prefer that. Yeah. And instead involves enjoying art with people you love and care about. That sounds awesome. Tell them about Swords and Satire. Watch the movies that we talk about with your loved ones. Then listen to our episodes with your loved ones. And spit out all the milk that you're drinking. Whoa. Because it's so funny. <laughs> And you spit on a relative you don't talk to very much. Oh, my God. And now you don't talk to them even more. Or maybe you talk more than you ever did. And every time you see them, they're like, hey, remember that milk thing? And you're like, oh, Jesus. <laughs> and you can never escape it all the years of your life. That sounds about right. But you'll both be wearing Swords and Satire merch one day. One Hopefully day. one day soon. It's true. Well then, until next time, Hail Crom! Hail Crom.